Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction, science, and this confusing, weird simulation that we call life. <laughs> I'm Charlie Jane Anders, the author of Never Say You Can't Survive, a brand new writing advice manual, and also the young adult space fantasy, Victories Greater Than Death. And I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm the author of a new book about discoveries in archaeology called Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. Today, we're going to be talking about activism. Speculative fiction has a lot to say about activism, and many of our favorite authors and creators right now are making intensely political stories about the nature of resistance. In today's show, we're going to be talking about one classic TV show that deals with activism in a really interesting way, and then later in the episode, we'll be talking to Claire Light, a.k.a. J.D. Jang, about the role of activism in her brand new novel, Monkey Around. And also, for our Patreon supporters, we'll be talking about Tuca and Birdie in our audio extra next week. Speaking of which, did you know that our patrons get audio extras after every episode? Yeah! Plus essays, reviews, and access to our Discord channel. It's, it's all amazing, and it can all be yours for just a few bucks a month. This podcast that you're listening to right now is entirely supported by you, the listeners. So anything you give us goes right back into helping us to keep our opinions entirely correct. So we're going to take a little break and then we'll be back with Blake's Seven. I'm a longtime fan of Blake 7, and it just finally came to streaming in the United States for the first time ever on the streaming service BritBox. Basically, this is the first time that the show has been available to watch legally in the United States since it was on PBS in the 80s and maybe early 90s. There also were these Canadian VHS tapes that you could kind of get as like bootleg imports if you knew a guy. But Basically, it's been impossible to find for a long, long time. So right now is the first time that many people are going to have a chance to watch this incredibly influential, game-changing space opera that ran from 1978 to 1981 in the UK. It's so amazing. I think one of the very first conversations that you and I ever had was about Blake 7, and I'd never heard of it because, as you said, it had never come to the States. It just wasn't that well-known outside mm -hmm. of the UK. Um, and I believe I've been watching it illegally. <laughs> um, I mean, you And, know. you know, I'm excited that now I can pay to watch it legally because it's it really is a terrific gem. Uh, there's just nothing like it. Um, so why don't you start by just giving us the thumbnail in, you know, of what it's about. Tell, tell us, tell us the world of Blake and his seven. First of all, I just want to say how incredibly grateful and blessed I feel that you did not run away screaming when I tried to talk to you about Blake Seven early on. <laughs> wow, in our hashtag blessed, hashtag Blake Seven. You two know, hashtags that have never appeared next to each other ever. <laughs> I just, you know, a lot of people. This is like, you know, a sign of our amazing bond that it's we're a sign still, of quality that, that I, you know, you know, in your taste, I think, you know. So. Yeah, and it so. is true that you you did force me to watch the pilot, which involves a lot of. 
intense brainwashing scenes. So thanks for that. That's that's good. So, okay, Blake Seven. There was this TV show that was the brainchild of Terry Nation, who's probably still best known as the inventor of the Daleks, Doctor Who's most famous villains. And so he wanted to create another, his own science fiction show. Blake Seven is about a dystopian future where the galaxy is ruled by kind of an evil, corrupt federation that, among other things, drugs and mind controls its subjects, and it's constantly trying to take over more independent planets. And basically, it is a dark Orwellian mirror version of the Federation from Star Trek, if the Federation was just completely evil and corrupt and exploitative. So the main character of the show is a guy named Raj Blake. He's a revolutionary who has previously tried to fight against the Federation, but they caught him, they killed his family, he's been brainwashed and tried to like, they've tried to turn him into just like an obedient citizen, but then the brainwashing fails. So they convict him on trumped up charges and send him on a prison ship en route to a prison planet But Blake turns things around. He teams up with some of his fellow prisoners from the prison ship, and they launch a new campaign to fight back against the Federation on board this amazing stolen alien starship called the Liberator. So I love that premise because immediately I'm sucked in as someone who is always invested in revolutionaries and insurrections. And, um, you know, I'm curious about why such a um, anti-authoritarian show was so influential and popular. This is the 1980s in in England, so this is the Thatcher era, right? So um, why why did it become so influential? I think it is kind of this counter-narrative to a lot of space opera, especially space opera of the time, which was so rah-rah. Like, if you watch it opposite, like, either the original Star Trek or Star Trek The Next Generation, which are very, like, gentle and friendly and, like, we're doing our best, we're doing the right thing, you know, our giant space armada is actually a force for good in the universe. And a lot of space opera is kind of about, it's kind of a way of thinking about, like, imperialism and settler colonialism in a kind of benign, gentle way that, like, kind of glosses over some of the ugly parts of it or the ugly core of it, I would say. And I feel like Blake Seven just unflinchingly looks at what probably a galactic empire or federation would really be like, which is just like most empires throughout history, just like horrible unless you're one of the chosen few. And also Blake Seven was hugely influential for a bunch of reasons like it was very heavily serialized, especially the second season is extremely serialized when most TV shows were just like episode of the week, like standalone episodes, you know, even TNG later on mostly was standalone episodes with the occasional like blip. And it's the first to like really take this kind of arc-based serious storytelling very serious seriously. Like in the second season, Blake is searching for this central computer that controls the Federation that he thinks he can destroy. 
to bring the Federation to its knees. And he goes on this quest that, you know, has twists and turns, but it's very consistently about this thing. It's also just a lot darker and more complex than like pretty much like any science fiction from any media science fiction from the era. And it's willing to kill off major characters in like startling dramatic ways. And it explores very complicated questions about like the ethics of revolution. It doesn't just like go, yay, we're fighting the bad guys. It's great. It kind of asks what the cost of like revolution is and like the right way to go about revolution. And, you know, another reason why the show remains iconic and and influential is this one character, Avon, who is, he's a computer hacker. He's kind of a dark, cynical, bitter kind of a little bit of a, he's just kind of a rogue. And he becomes Blake's right-hand man. And he's always spouting these incredibly quotable lines about like how he's only out for himself and we're all just alone and nobody can ever trust anybody. And he's spawned like a million imitations, including, I would argue, characters like Tyrion Lannister. And the very palpable sexual tension between Blake and Avon, you know, has spawned so much homoerotic fan fiction or slash fic <laughs> and has become kind of like one of the great homoerotic tense relationships of sci-fi. It's for like sure. one of the first ships to set sail for sure. from, it's like, from the good continent sci-fi. <laughs> you know, we had Kirk and Spock were like the OG kind of two dudes who clearly want a bone. And then I think, you know, Blake and Avon, they're just smolder at each other. They really do. We were watching an episode last night, actually, and there's this great scene where they're about to go after that central control computer, and Blake is trying to get everybody on board with him, and Avon is sort of sitting off in the corner smoldering in his, like, weird latex outfit, and, like, Blake sits down next to him on the sofa to have a special conversation, and the first thing that Blake does is he, like, bites his finger in this really, like, sexy way, oh my God. and Avon kind of twitches his lips, and I'm just like, what? what is even happening here? <laughs> like, So I think that it's super interesting that this is a story that seems really like a commentary on the Federation in Star Trek, like you said. Like, it's kind of a reaction against that. But instead of taking the easy way out and just sort of, like, doing the Firefly thing of inverting it and saying, like, oh, well, this time the Federation is bad and, like, the good guys are the revolutionaries. Instead, even the revolutionaries, Blake and his team, have all these moral gray areas. And so, I mean, to go back to something that you said a little bit earlier, I'm curious, like, what does the show say about the ethics of revolution? Like, how does it deal with that question? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really significant that, like, Blake is, you know, mostly not working with, like, other career revolutionaries in the show. He's working with convicted criminals, many of whom are just kind of out for themselves the way Avon very vocally is. Part of what's lovely about the show is that he does kind of win them over, and pretty much everybody except for Avon pretty quickly becomes, like, a committed revolutionary. And we see, we glimpse these other revolutionary groups that are out there that are kind of like all these people who are Occupy Federation or Occupy you know, some random planet. But mostly it's about Blake and his crew trying to navigate this on their own. And, you know, one of the main arcs of the first couple of seasons is that Blake slowly compromises his principles in the name of revolution. And, you know, and I just recently rewatched the second episode of the series Spacefall and spoilers. And by the way, there will be minor spoilers in this episode. I should have said up front. We're not going to give away like huge things that happen. But in Spacefall, there's a moment where Blake basically 
has a choice between sacrificing some of the people who've chosen to follow him or winning this standoff that he has with these guards. And he chooses to, you know, surrender his advantage to save his people because he's like, I'm not going to throw anybody's life away to, for my cause. And, you know, by season two, he is very much willing to throw people's lives away for mm. his cause. You know, early in season two, again, minor spoilers, he tries to make an alliance with these drug lords whose drug is like basically one of those science fictional drugs that is so addictive and so lethal that anybody who takes it is just condemned to death. And, you know, Blake is like, I will work with these people if I have to, because that's how I'm going to get an advantage against the Federation. Later on, he's trying to get this computer system. This He's trying to capture this control computer. And people point out to him, you know, this computer doesn't just control the Federation's like space military. It also controls environmental systems and other things like that on hundreds of planets. If you destroy this computer, there will be mass starvation. And Blake is like, it's a sacrifice we have to make. And he is willing to, increasingly willing to risk the lives of his crew in worse and worse ways, in more and more doomed ways that eventually do bite him in the ass. Because he's like, the revolution requires sacrifices. And this is definitely very sobering for any of those of us who want to, you know, fight against oppression, because it is very much like, be careful that you don't become, I don't want to say as bad as the people you're fighting, because the people he's fighting are incredibly bad, but that you don't become your own kind of special monster in the name of this fight. At the same time, the Blake 7 keeps finding little ways to show how to a bunch of ordinary people living in, within the Federation, they see the Federation as this benign civilizing force. There are certainly huge pockets of life within the Federation that are very comfortable and very kind of friendly. And there are people who are like, refuse to believe that the Federation could ever be bad, who are, you know, living in the heart of it. And not unlike people who are living in the United States today, they just, it's very easy to not be aware of the bad things that are being done in your name by your government. And part of Blake's problem is that his, his solution to this is always violence. It's always destruction. And he does become this kind of legendary freedom fighter that a lot of people look up to. But at the same time, he's never able to counteract this benevolent image that the Federation has for, with its own citizens. Yeah, I mean, there's so much nuance in the show. And I feel like, um, again, not to give away a spoiler, but I feel like the Federation is often kind of two steps ahead of Blake in terms mm -hmm. of managing its image. And like, there's a lot of episodes which we sort of feel like Blake is about to really like make some strides. And then it kind of, I mean, I want to say it goes in the direction of like, Black Mirror-ish mm -hmm. feelings. And it also reminds me a little bit sometimes of The Prisoner, yes. where it's like you feel like they're right about to get to the thing, and then it's like, actually, we totally fooled you. And mm -hmm. in fact, you thought you were going after this target, but we it's something that we set up to, to mess with you. And so there's like a strand of, I don't know, like nihilism in the show mm -hmm. or like so do you feel like it's a show that that is a little bit like Black Mirror and that it kind of wallows in nastiness? Or do you think that it's it, there's something else there? I think that it's a show that, like you said, is very nuanced. It rejects easy kind of nihilism or nihilism as much as it rejects like the kind of rah-rah, you know, the heroes always win, everything's always great. It rejects both of those things. It's one of those shows that I think part of why 
people keep coming back to it is that it it has more questions than answers. It doesn't ever give you an easy answer to any of these questions. But, you know, at the same time, like I said, you have this crew of criminals who are mostly like they've only they've seen the worst that the universe has to offer. They're all incredibly cynical and bitter and kind of broken. But Blake inspires them. And we see that over and over again. And, you know, we talk endlessly on this show and in our lives, I feel like, about quote-unquote chosen family. I feel like this show is one of the OG chosen family stories. It's very much about how these outcasts and rebels and losers become a family and how they band together. And, you know, even when Blake isn't there, they're still kind of upholding his banner and they're still trying to kind of make a difference. And, you really care about these characters and what happens to them, even when they're making horrible mistakes and being terrible people, because they're fundamentally kind of lovable and they clearly care about each other. And, you know, to return to the character of Avon, who I think he starts out as a side character, and, you know, this is kind of not really a spoiler, but as with many things of this nature, like just how Spock becomes kind of in many ways the main character of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Avon becomes the main character of Blake Seven, and he clearly takes over the show at a certain point. And in every episode, he gives these beautiful speeches about how he's only out for himself. You can never really count on other people. We're all alone. You know, trusting other people is a mistake. And then the show demonstrates over and over again that Avon is wrong. And that he kind of knows fundamentally deep down that he's wrong. And and there's this wonderful moment in the episode Horizon from season two where Avon really tries to convince himself that he can go it alone. I do not need Blake. I do not need any of the others. Is that a question? I do not need anybody at all. Is that a question? I, I, I must ask you to be more specific. Shut up, Warwick. And what's great about that scene is that Blake has always been very careful not to leave Avon alone on the ship because he suspects that if Avon is alone on the Liberator, their starship, Avon will just take the ship and leave everybody else to die because that's who Avon is or that's who Avon keeps saying he is. Mm -hmm. And here's Avon being like very methodically but also clearly struggling with this saying, okay, well, if I'm the person I say I am, I have to leave my friends to die now. And he almost does, and it's a spoiler as to how, why he doesn't. But in the end, by the final season, it's very clear that Avon has survived by depending on other people. And the layers of his character keep getting peeled away. And we realize that his quote-unquote loner facade was always kind of partially a lie. You know, the most important line in the entire run of the show is when Blake finally says, to Avon, I have always trusted you from the beginning. And by the final season, it's Avon who is trying to build alliances to fight against the Federation. He has recognized that he can't do it alone and that the crew, his crew can't do it alone and that they need to team up with as many other people as possible to form a united front against their common enemy and to fight oppression. Obviously, something very shocking happens in the final episode to kind of upend that. But Avon does a 180 over the course of the series, and I think that's part of the message of the show is you can't do this alone. We're not alone. We have to band together. I love that so much. I love Avon's character. I mean, not just because he's a smoking hot hacker boy, but like also I really buy his character arc. And actually, as you were talking about his shift in perspective 
I kept thinking about a cheesy show that we love, Andromeda from yeah. 2000, which has a very, I think, Avon-influenced character. Oh, yeah. Tyr. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tyr, Tyr is like the ultimate libertarian. And like every time he's they're going to— Nietzschean. Right. He's a Nietzschean. Exactly. And <gasps> Where he's are the Hegelians oh, in that universe? I mean, the Hegelians are like on another ship, okay? They're like, they're on the good ship dialectics. Um, <laughs> so, but Kevin Sorbo, who's like the captain of the ship, is always having to like convince Tyr to do shit in the same way that Blake is always convincing mm-hmm. um, Avon because like has to show like, well, this is in your self-interest to do this unself, this selfless thing, right? And so I feel like both of these shows have incorporated like the the libertarian geek perspective mm-hmm. into the show, almost saying like, listen, libertarian geeks, we know you're out there. We know you're watching the show. Like we need to show you why it's better to be like Ted Lasso than it is to be like, you know, um, a lone um, wolf. So now that I've gratuitously brought up Ted Lasso for no reason, why do you think that this show is now coming to the U.S.? Like, is there is there a new relevancy? I, I guess I don't want you to impute some kind of intentionality to whoever bought the rights to it to bring it to the U.S., but do you think that now that it's available in the U.S., there's something that in, you know, our year of 2021 we can be getting out of this show? Yeah, I mean, first of all, if I had to speculate, I would say that possibly the show is now coming to the U.S. because all the attempts to reboot it have probably kind of gone on the back burner. And there were a lot of right struggles because people were trying to reboot it. And oh, it's a very difficult, it would be so difficult to reinvent this show now in for so many reasons that I could get into. But I think the show does have a new relevancy because we're all in the middle of all these struggles for social justice against huge implacable forces that seem unstoppable, that seem like these giant monoliths of like late stage capitalism and white supremacy and everything and patriarchy. And it can be frustrating. It can be exhausting. You can, it's easy to get burned out trying to, you know, make a dent in any of these oppressive structures. And I think what Blake Seven ultimately says is that you have to celebrate the small victories, which over the course of the show, Blake and his crew do achieve a lot of small victories. And in the context of the show, often a quote-unquote small victory is that they liberated a planet. And it's like, oh, well, we saved one planet from the Federation. You know, we still haven't destroyed the Federation. That's not good enough. But we did liberate this planet of millions of people or possibly yeah, billions of people. Yeah, I was going to say, people. a planet is pretty big, Charlie Jane. I mean, <laughs> you know, and so that's the thing. The surface message of Blake 7 is a little bit of pessimism about social change. Like it is this sense of like, you may not see the Federation brought down in your lifetime. And again, we're not going to give spoilers for the overall what happens in the show. But, you know, the show does kind of keep reminding us over and over again that the Federation is huge and massive and mighty and that we're not going to bring it down in our lifetime. It's not, we're not going to see it destroyed. But at the same time, you know, The heart of the show, the beating heart of this show is about finding your people and sticking together and cherishing the little victories, like I said. And there are constantly these little moments where we're reminded that, you know, as Blake gives little speeches in every episode, we can't give up. We have to keep fighting, you know, and that as long as we're fighting, there is hope. And that, you know, the bond that we form with each other as we fight for justice is an invaluable thing. And Blake does become this legendary figure across the galaxy that people would die for. 
and that people unfortunately do die for. And he becomes a symbol. He becomes a much bigger symbol than he was originally when he was like part of this resistant movement on, on earth. And so, you know, I feel like the final message of the show also, which I think is something we all need to think about is that as you're fighting against like ultimate, you know, horrible, oppressive nastiness, you do need to hold on to your own principles and not try to make the kind of shortcuts that Blake tries to make along the way, because in the end, those things will just, you know, they'll be self-destructive and counter counterproductive. Yeah, I I love that about the show, that it is an unflinching look at how even when you're trying to do the right thing, there are still ethical pitfalls and that you don't get to just automatically become the good guy because you're against the bad guys. Yes, absolutely. I, I couldn't put it better myself. And so uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by the incredible, the heroic, Claire Light, a.k.a. J.D. Jang, author of the brand new novel, Monkey Around. If you're enjoying Our Opinions Are Correct, there's another podcast we think you'll like too. It's called Cancel Me Daddy. It's a show that takes a critical look at all the panic around cancel culture with thoughtful analysis and verbal shitposting. Cancel Me Daddy is hosted by two incredible journalists, Caitlin Burns and Oliver Ash Klein, who are both hilarious and smart. I've been following Caitlin's career for a long time now, and she's just a fantastic writer and reporter, and Oliver Ash has been helping to organize the Trans Journalists Association. I love them both, and I've been listening to their show, and I've been just just loving their irreverent, playful approach to a really intense and kind of upsetting topic. They see the panic over cancel culture for what it is, a grift. Taking a closer look at these temper tantrums, dispelling myths, laughing at the most outrageous takes, and shedding light on whose voices are actually being left out of the conversation. You can catch a new episode every other Thursday. Make sure to subscribe to Cancel Me Daddy right now, wherever you listen to podcasts, or you might get canceled. So now we're incredibly lucky to be joined by one of our friends and inspirations, Claire Light, a.k.a. J.D. Jang. Thanks so much for joining us, Claire. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, I mean, we've both been lucky enough to read a couple of different versions of Monkey Around over the years, and I love the final version. It's such a fun novel. And, you know, one of the things that jumps out at me is that it's not just, you know, about an urban fantasy about shapeshifters and, like, the politics of shapeshifters, but it kind of engages with larger politics as well. And your main character is actually an activist in a bunch of different ways. And, you know, what made you want to have her be both, like, a shapeshifter and a political revolutionary? Well, one of the things that I wanted to do here was to take uh, urban fantasy, which is one of my favorite genre genres, and, um, you know, genres that are, that are restricted by very strict trope sets. And I wanted to bring it into my world. One of the tropes that I dislike about urban fantasy, well, two of the tropes that I dislike about urban fantasy, one of them is that it's very uh, white 
Mm-hmm. And the other is that it's um, that the central character in, in woman-centered urban fantasy tends to be a cop, um, mm-hmm. a, a, a licensed detective, or some kind of supernatural enforcer. So, right. so some kind of police, some kind of military, some kind of um, official sort of enforcer type a figure. A ghostbuster. A ghostbuster, <laughs> an authoritarian, an authority, and an authoritarian figure, um, or a representation of some kind of authority. So true. So, um, and I come from the activist world. I come from the social justice world. And in the Bay Area, you know, the, the social justice continuum is extremely broad. You guys are part of it as well. And um, so, you know, it's like a lot of a lot of mansions uh, in this particular world. And I'm in the Asian American side of it. And I just really wanted to see that reflected in one of my favorites genres. But also, I I wanted the flip side. I wanted people who read this genre to sort of be exposed to a completely different political framing of the world. Uh, because when you're looking at the world through the fl- framing of police or authority or um, you know, enforcement, law enforcement, even if you're not intending to, uh, the world falls into a particular line. And if you're looking at the world through the framing of people who are intentionally disrupting government, intentionally disrupting mm-hmm. society for good causes, the the tropes fall in line behind that as well. Right. That's so interesting. I love that idea of having um, a novel where we're we're shape-shifting the genre itself. You know, we're we're kind of going in this other direction. And one of the other things about this this novel is that it's actually a historical novel. It's a recent historical novel. And you chose to set it in 2011 during the Occupy protests. And I wonder why you chose that particular period. Like, why did you want that to be the political backdrop for this story about activism? Well, um, I wanted it to be very contemporary. I want this. Um, I'm planning a series. I'm hoping this will turn into a series. And I wanted the series to be very contemporary and to be about activism today. And for me, I feel like all of the activist movements, and we've, in the past decade, we've seen some incredible activist movements in the United States, Black Lives Matter and um, No Dakota Access Pipeline and um, Anti-Trump and Me Too and all of this stuff. And I feel like while All of those have deep, deep, deep historical roots that go back to the founding of our country and and earlier. The roots of the particular type of activism that coalesced around these movements started with Occupy. Um, The personnel started with Occupy. And if you look at all of these movements, a lot of the leadership in those movements had a toe in Occupy or were awakened by Occupy in some way. Although Occupy never satisfactorily concluded, it kind of petered out in a very bizarre and unsatisfying way. We're seeing where Occupy went every single year. We're seeing these movements that I really strongly feel started with Occupy. To be perfectly honest, I'm not sure I made that argument strongly enough in the book, but I'm hoping if this turns into a series, that argument will be made in successive novels where I'll be looking at successive movements and talking about how those related back to Occupy. 
Yeah, well, and one of the things that's so great about the book is it does kind of feel like it's this unique moment where something is beginning and there's like a movement and there's these confrontations with the police that are kind of feel like the start of something new. They're like a new kind of energy around activism. And part of what I love about the book is like the fantasy world building with all these different communities of shapeshifters, these intersecting communities, and like the way in which a lot of it is about managing the diversity of the the Bay Area kind of supernatural community. And, you know, do you feel like that was an important thing to kind of explore alongside like this kind of monolithic, you know, activists versus, you know, the authorities situation? Absolutely. Uh, I don't think it's at all a coincidence that so many particular types of activist movements have had their roots in the Bay Area. The Bay Area is a very particular place. The Bay Area Asian American community is a very particular place. Um, The Bay Area queer community is a very particular place. The Bay Area XYZ is a very particular place. The circumstances here, the geography here, the population here, the way we're all kind of crammed up together, the way we're all divided and brought together by the Bay, all of these things contribute to the culture and the subcultures that we have here. So very particular types of movements get their start in the Bay as opposed to other types of movements that get their start elsewhere. And I wanted to show that. And the thing about Occupy is that Occupy started in in Wall Street, but I'm not showing Occupy Wall Street. I'm showing Occupy Oakland, which was 100% its own beast. It definitely was inspired by and drew from Occupy Wall Street, but it became its own thing. And um, I didn't go into it in in a great deal of detail and monkey around, but I did hint at it, um, the fact that Occupy Oakland had a very large contingent of people of color involved who were very vocal about the language of Occupy, about the leadership of Occupy Oakland, about the structure of Occupy Oakland and how it needed to be processed in a different way. There was a a lot of movement around um, renaming it not Occupy, which is a very colonialist uh, kind of word, Mm -hmm. but rather calling it decolonize Oakland instead of Occupy and so forth. And there were a lot of discussions around this as well. And there were a lot of discussions around policing, too, um, to go back to what you were saying earlier about kind of getting away from police characters, because I feel like Occupy Wall Street was about corporate America and Occupy Oakland or decolonize Oakland was focused on like a lot of like police abolition stuff that later coalesced into a much more, you know, around Black Lives Matter coalesced into um, police abolitionism as such. I wanted to ask you about the shape-shifting part of this book because uh, we've been talking a lot about the politics and I'm wondering, did you think about shape-shifting specifically as a metaphor that's political? Was it more just that you think shapeshifters are badass? Like, tell us about why you, because you could have picked anything. Could have been vampires, could have been ghosts. Why shapeshifters? Well, three things. One, it's it's the most common trope with, um, with one of the most common tropes with um, urban fantasy. There, there's a, there's a, a quarter of the urban fantasy world that's completely dedicated to wear animals, and, um, <laughs> and we love our wear animals. So hell yeah, yeah, hell yeah. I'm imagining you putting together like a spreadsheet and being like, okay, what are the most common tropes? <laughs> <laughs> um, I just pick the tropes that I like the most, and and I love wear animals because you know you you can you can pick it up or or you can leave it, um, but animals have personalities and. 
you can reflect personality traits in animals, or you can put an animal on a person and then make them act like that animal. So there's there's that a- aspect of it. And yes, I I just think they're badass. I, I think the the idea like a lot of a lot of this is just my own wish fulfillment, and the idea of being able to turn into an animal and and be able to do all the things that animal can do. I just love that. Um, but yes, there, there, it's also definitely a metaphor for so many things. But particularly since we're talking about, I mean, Monkey Around looks primarily at people who are in recent immigrant communities, Asian American and, and Latino, Latinx um, communities, who have to spend a lot of time code switching. Mm-hmm. And um and I, I just recently have been have been working on the audiobook and, and on a um, uh, like a translation and accent guide for the audiobook, and um, and for everybody's accent, I'm like code switches between X, Y, and Z. Oh, wow. All of my main characters are constantly code switching, and you see a little bit of that code switching in the book as well. So, um, so you know the the wear animal thing is is definitely the shape shifting thing is definitely code switching, and um, and the two main, main um, supernatural Asian-American characters in the book, Maya and Todd. Maya is Chinese-American and Todd's Japanese-American. Uh, and Maya is a, a monkey king, a female monkey king. Um, and Todd is a um, kitsune, fox spirit. Um, these are creatures who can shapeshift into any form. They're not, res- they're not constrained to their default animal form. And that's not a coincidence either because I'm Asian American and because I'm most conversant with the Asian American community. And because the Asian American community is a lot of different cultures and languages mm-hmm. crammed up together, the c- type of shape shifting, the type of code switching that you have to do in Asian American activism is much broader than uh, what you have to do in in other communities where you have like more monolithic language base or a more monolithic cultural base. So yeah, that's that. I mean, obviously, I didn't specifically choose Monkey King and Kitsune for those reasons, but they lend themselves very much to that. Yeah, well, and as a lifelong, uh, you know, obsessive fan of the Monkey King, I love how you kind of, you know, what you do with that mythos. I love the character of Maya in general. She's so impetuous and kind of like rash and like the way that so many great fantasy heroes are. I wanted to kind of come back to this idea of like fantasy being kind of conservative. Like I feel like fantasy in general, like the roots of fantasy mm-hmm. are stories about like if we can have the true king, if the true king can take power, then all will be good in the realm. And <laughs> like, you know, the anointed king must must rule. And like that's like it's a thing across like a lot of fantasy stories. Even the Earthsea books like Ursula K. Le Guin have that. And so, you know, are you do you feel like you're pushing against the tropes of fantasy by having a story that's like about community building and about like reconciling all these different like immigrant communities and they're not being like, you know, an authority being kind of this thing that's not trusted or not uh, not trusted, I guess. Yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, one of the things that is, um, and I'm going to take a slight detour here for a second. Uh, one of the things that's most that's interesting about woman-centered urban fantasy, woman-centered paranormal detective stories, which this is firmly in the in the genre of, is that they deal with with the power dynamics of of young single women in the urban, uh, young single professional women in the urban sphere, and they deal with that by making the the central female character unique. Her powers are unique, but her powers are weaker, technically weaker. 
then those of and there's always a love triangle. Then those are the two alpha males. Well, oh. there, there's usually an alpha male and a lone wolf uh, male, and um, and both of them are more powerful than she is technically. But she has a unique set of powers that are useful to them in those ways. So the um, the way that the conservatism is expressed in these in these novels is is that the the men who are courting her represent authority and order, and she is a kind of um, She's a kind of adjunct that stands outside of authority and order, but lends herself and her uniqueness to authority and order and comes at it from kind of an oblique angle. And that talks about the way that really intelligent, really competent professional women are used in the professional sphere and in the urban world. So I wanted to kind of pick that apart, and I wanted to talk about collective action, and I wanted to talk about... Um, what leadership looks like in co- within collective action. It's it, it was kind of interesting because I had to push back really hard against the tropes because they're just not they don't lend themselves to this. Maya um, is stronger and more powerful than everyone else, and I and I deliberately wanted her to be that. I wanted her. The Monkey King is stronger, and more powerful than everyone else, and I wanted her to be that. And I wanted her to be the woman who is not just unique, but is stronger, and more powerful than anyone else, and has to hold herself back so as not to be looked down upon, not to be pushed out, and not to be. Uh, not to be also constantly overwhelming other people. But also she is an activist and she has to rely on collective action. She has to rely on other people's talents and she can't constantly be overwhelming other people with her power and authority. So we see her negotiating this in the book, holding herself back and uh, trying to be respectful of other people's powers and abilities while at the same time knowing in herself that she equals or, or exceeds them. And then when it comes down to it, I mean, not to give too much of a spoiler, when it comes down to it, she is not the person who has the power, the, the, um, the ability set, the power set to, to ultimately solve the problem in the book. It ends up being a man who has the ability mm-hmm. set to solve the problem. So she has to then find a way to assist him and, and work collectively with him to solve this problem. And I and I had to rewrite that ending so many times to get it so that it wasn't just the man solving the problem again. Right. Yeah. I, I'm, I remember that. Yeah, I do too. I, <laughs> it, it is like a delicate balance. Um, one of the things that I was thinking of as you were talking about the structure of the genre is that in fantasy and in science fiction, there's kind of a, a well-known subgenre that's like military, you know, that's all about these sort of police officers and these, you know, authority groups that that wield authority and kind of what it's like to be inside those groups. And I feel like there should be a genre that's that your book would fit into, that Monkey Around would fit into, that's basically the genre, like the subgenre of like insurrection or of direct action. Is there something like that out there that you're, that you see your book as being part of, or do you feel like that doesn't really exist? I mean, not that it needs to have a label. Like, I'm not trying to say like, what we need is a new section at the bookstore where I can Mm -hmm. go buy this. I'm just saying, (laughs) is there like a tradition within the genre that you think is kind of unacknowledged, but that you're still kind of part of? Like activist fantasy kind of. Yeah, activist fantasy. I want a direct action fantasy. 
direct action fantasy. Well, I mean, you know, as soon as you say that, my mind immediately goes to science fiction. And um, huh. and that that's the thing is that science fiction has a profound tradition of uh, looking at, uh, you know, colonialism, looking at, you know, rebellions, mm-hmm. looking at um, at collective action movements, um, and also looking at the um, the aftermath of these things. I mean, you know, even Star Trek, even in the 90s, we had Deep Space Nine, which was a post-colonial yeah. um, Star yeah, Trek. for sure. Uh, and, and um, you know, Ursula Le Guin's entire uh, is basically about, about c- colonization. And the expanse. And, and the expanse. And we were just talking about Blake Seven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. And, and you just you just wrote about Blake Seven, yeah. which I'm looking forward to finally seeing. But that's very, very that's a very, very science fiction thing. But that is specifically because it's about the future. Mm. And fantasy is about the present or the past. Um, and in fact, if you look at the divide, the main divide in fantasy, which is high and low or epic and contemporary, epic high fantasy, epic fantasy is about looking at the past and contemporary low or contemporary fantasy is about looking at the present, um, about bringing these elements of the past into the present. And of course, you know, the um, the supernatural creatures that we that we talk about in urban fantasy are all um, superstitions from the past. So when we bring them into the contemporary world, what we're doing is we're kind of abrogating our contract with the Enlightenment and 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 our whole idea that we're going to put away these childish superstitious things of the past oh, and wow. and and no longer and and think about things in an entirely enlightened rational manner. Mm-hmm. Um, and which is so also why white America has such a bizarre love-hate relationship with magical realism because magical realism is about a past that has continued up into the present and is not, you know, a past that kind of went all the way, went around the Enlightenment and carried its superstitions forward or, or, you know, reworked them through Christianity or what have you. So, I mean, not going to get into the whole thing, but, um, but I would say there are two strains of quote unquote fantasy that that might deal with this, and one is um, one is fabulism, and one is magical realism. Right, and Super but and that's because you know fabulism is experimental, and um, magical realism is uh, non-Western. So. Yeah, I was just gonna say that my contract with rationality was a click-through agreement, and <laughs> I didn't did really not read even it. read all the terms and conditions. No, it's true. The social, it's it's that's how they get you. So. So one final question, and then we will let you go. You know, one of the things that really jumps out at me in this book is like how it's about kind of the playfulness of activism as well as the kind of serious struggle. And I feel like classical activism often is just like, no, we can't have pop culture. We can't have like, you know, goofiness. We have to be serious about it. And like in your book, you know, Maya is also helping to run this coffee shop that's kind of a center of community building. She's working on this magazine for Asian Americans that's also, and she's doing playful stuff. She's helping to like put on shows and things. Why is it important to showcase like playful kind of fun activism alongside like the kind of gritty, like facing up to the police kind of stuff? Well, I, I think it's important to to showcase all the faces of activism and and to make it clear that this is a way of life um, that people who are activists it's it is it is also a job. It's not just you know um, Molotov cocktail throwing you know wild eyed crazies who um, <laughs> who have like dedicated their whole lives to like saving a tree. It's like people who want who've made 
their career out of making the world a better place. And they they work at nonprofits. They um, you know and get paid for it. And they um, they organize and volunteer in their free time. And they also go and hang out and have fun in art spaces. And they go to movies together. And they make movies together. And they they party. And um, and they you know they. They party even when they're doing their work, and uh, they're fully. This is a fully rounded person. An activist is a fully rounded person. An activist community is a fully rounded community. You know, they get married, they have children, they they do all all kinds of things, all kinds of crazy things that other people do. <laughs> um, and I think it's just they're really, just like really, us. They're just like uh, activists. They're just like us. And it's really important to um, humanize activists because you know we're not we're not these special saints, and we're also not crazies. We're ordinary people in the ordinary world. And hey, guess what? You can join us anytime. That's a wonderful note to end on. So uh, before we let you go, Claire, where can people find you? Uh, I am at clairelight.org. That's C-L-A-I-R-E-L-I-G-H-T dot O-R-G. And um, I'm also on Twitter at C-Light. That's S-E-E-L-I-G-H-T. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Our Opinions Are Correct. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, we have a Patreon, and it is extremely vitally essential and super appreciated that you support us and give us all of your wuffy and all of your, you know, non-fungible tote bags and whatever else you feel like giving us to help us. Like shavings, like cyber currency shavings. Yes, exactly. If you could just (laughs) give us a few slivers of a Bitcoin, it would help us to keep making this show and to like, we will hold you in our hearts forever. So that's it. Patreon.com slash Our Opinions Are Correct. We're also on Twitter at OOACpod and you can find us wherever you might find podcasts. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you like us and listen to us there. Thank you so much to our incredibly valiant and just brilliant producer, Veronica Simonetti at Women's Audio Mission. Thanks so much to Chris Palmer for the music. And thanks once again to you for listening. We'll be back in another couple weeks with another episode. Bye! Bye!